But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that this part of your word will speak to us now by your spirit. Uh, please give us soft hearts and ready ears to hear what you have to say to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you noticed, our passage today focuses on this guy, Stephen. And Stephen was one of the seven men who we met last week who had been charged with uh, looking after the care of widows in the church and organising the distribution of food for them. But Stephen is famous for something else. He's famous for being the first Christian martyr, which I guess is probably not something you want to have as your claim to fame. Although throughout history, martyrdom has sometimes had a certain or been given a certain air of romanticism about it, a certain kind of aspect of honour to it. But there is nothing romantic about having an angry mob stone you to death, as Stephen did. And we know that there is nothing romantic about being attacked for daring to speak about Jesus. Now, we'll probably never face an angry mob with stones, but we may still face opposition or just quiet rejection. And we need to be prepared for that because the message of Jesus does create opposition. If we speak about Jesus faithfully, people will oppose us. And the story of Stephen tells us why. At least in part, it tells us why speaking about the guy who taught love and forgiveness causes such opposition. So let's have a look at the passage again. And we see our first point of Stephen being accused of blasphemy. As I said, Stephen is one of the seven men who were given charge of caring for the widows, though clearly he did other things as well. In verse 8, he's described as a man full of grace and power, and he performed great signs and wonders, but he also attracted opposition. And it seems that the opposition was not so much about what he was doing as what he was saying. And before long, he found himself facing the charges of blasphemy. If you have a look in verse 11, he's accused there of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God dishonouring Moses and God. And in verse 13, we hear their accusation again, and I think it's probably really the same accusation, now just getting a bit more specific. I'll read it from verse 12. So these people who accused them stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. You see, their charge of blasphemy against Stephen focuses on the temple and on the tradition, the law of Moses. Now, we're told here that this was the testimony of false witnesses so it doesn't necessarily tell us all that much about what Stephen himself was saying, but at least it tells us what his accusers cared about. They had decided that honouring God meant honouring the temple, the place where God was meant to live, and that honouring God meant taking pride in the law and the traditions of Moses that they held on to. 
These people were zealous to defend God's honour in these two particular ways, the temple and the law. So that was the charge. Let's have a look at Stephen's defence. We see that in chapter 7. And you notice that he addresses, as he speaks, he addresses these two particular issues, the temple and the law, although he kind of seems to have a fairly roundabout way of getting to it. You notice that Stephen begins his defence by telling I think what you'd have to say is a fairly uncontroversial history of Israel and of God's dealings with Israel. And he particularly focuses on Abraham and Joseph and Moses. This is the kind of speech that the people listening to him would have had no issues with. They would have nodded along in agreement. They knew this story just as well, if not better, than Stephen did. But woven throughout this very familiar story... Stephen is actually making a point about the temple and about the law of Moses. Now, I'm just going to touch on the temple bit briefly, and then we'll come back to talk about the law of Moses. So when it comes to the temple, Stephen's point is that God doesn't need a special place. God was perfectly capable of making his promises to Abraham wherever he was and keeping them. God was perfectly capable of looking after Joseph and of calling Moses to save Israel wherever they were. God was never limited to any one place. And this is where you kind of have to get out your, your atlas. And I, and I did that and I got out Google Maps and had a look at some of these places that Stephen mentions where God did such significant things in the history of Israel and their ancestors. And you know what? None of them are in Jerusalem where the temple is. Most of them are not even in Israel. They're in northern Iraq. They're in Egypt. They're in the Arabian Peninsula. The one place that was actually within the borders of Israel, Shechem, that was now in Samaritan territory. And Stephen's accusers would hardly want to claim that as God's place. Stephen's point is that God doesn't need a special place. And when the temple finally was built, after God had been with his people for over a thousand years, when that finally happened, it wasn't even God's initiative to build the temple. It was David's. And it wasn't David who built it. It was his son Solomon. God was in no hurry to have the temple built. And while God did give permission for Solomon to build the temple, he was still very clear. Let me, have a, let me read what is said in verse 49 and 50 of chapter 7. This is what God said about building the temple. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so Stephen's summary about the temple is there in verse 48. God does not live in houses made by human hands. So for Stephen's accusers to attach their zeal for God to this one place was misguided. God was never limited to one place. And all the more now that Jesus has come. We don't enter God's presence through a building. We enter God's presence through Jesus by trusting him. Jesus is the doorway to God's presence. That's what Stephen has to say about the temple. God does not need a special place. And as I get to the end of verse 50, 
where he says that, and into verse 51, I don't know about you, but I, I found myself thinking, well, that verse 51 seems like a massive change of gears in Stephen's speech. You know, when you're listening to someone speaking about something and you think you already know what they're saying and so you're only half listening? You know, you, you, you're kind of doing something else at the same time and listening just with one ear. Maybe you're at home doing that right now, scrolling through Facebook or making a coffee. But then all of a sudden, they start talking about something that you didn't expect and you find yourself, th- find yourself thinking, how did we get to that? And you've got to rewind and go back and, and work it out. That's how I felt when I got to verse 51. Everything seemed like it was going along fairly normally and then all of a sudden this change of gears and I thought, how did we get to that? So let's do that. Let's rewind and look at it again. And this time we'll focus on the second accusation against Stephen about the law and the traditions of Moses. And Stephen's point here is that having the law is not the same as keeping the law. Having the law is not the same as keeping it. See, Stephen's fairly familiar and uncontroversial retelling of the history of Israel is the story of the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of Israel. God was the one who chose Abraham and promised him many descendants, even though he had no children. And when God had grown their number to the 12 patriarchs, all they contributed was their act of jealousy, selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him and looked after him, and in fact, the whole family. And so we get to verse 17 of chapter 7, and it says, When the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. And this is where Moses comes into the story. This Moses who Stephen's accusers were so zealous to honour, this was the Moses who their ancestors had rejected. Let me read from verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. They rejected Moses, but God was still faithful. And through Moses, God gave them the law. Let me read from verse 37 now and 38. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. That's the law, living words from God. This Moses who they were so keen to honour, this law that they were so keen to defend, what's their track record with Moses and the law? It's in the next verse, verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Israel rejected Moses and the law. In that very moment when God was giving Moses the law, Israel was turning to idols. See, receiving the law was not a high point in Israel's relationship with God. It was a low point. And sadly, it was one of many low points. Hundreds of years later, when the prophet Amos was talking about that same moment, 
He said, this is what you have always done. You don't have a history of honouring Moses and the law. You have a history of rejecting God, of disobeying the law and of killing the prophets. That was Israel's tradition when it came to Moses and the law. And so now when we get back to verse 51 and Stephen turns the tables on his accusers, it actually doesn't seem like such a big change of gears at all. Stephen is just putting the final piece in the story, the most important piece. Your ancestors disobeyed the law and killed the prophets, and now you have killed the one those prophets predicted, Jesus, the righteous one. Let me read from verse 52 and 53 again. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Yes, they had the law. But what good is that if they don't keep it? Yes, they had the temple. But God does not live in houses made by human hands. Stephen's accusers claim that they are indignant for the honour of God, but they're actually indignant for their own honour because what Stephen is saying is an indictment against them, not against God. They were angry because Stephen was saying that they are actually on the wrong side of God. They had confused their zeal for God with zeal for themselves. And so they killed him. And if I could just make one point that I think that we need to take away from this, it's this. Honouring God must include recognising our own unfaithfulness to God. Honouring God must include recognising our own unfaithfulness to God. And so it challenges our self-righteousness. And this, I think, is why the message of Jesus is so divisive and so opposed, particularly among those who think highly of ourselves, whether we are religious or not. You see, it wasn't just Stephen's hearers who bore the blame for Jesus' death. We all bear that blame because our sin sent Jesus to the cross. It was our rejection of God that sent Jesus to his death. That's part of the message of Jesus, and people don't want to hear that. That message got Stephen killed. And while we might not be killed for it here in Australia, it's not going to make us many friends either. I remember a while ago, I was having a conversation with a new friend. I hadn't known this guy all that long, but we were getting on pretty well. And one day, he was very keen to have a conversation about religion, as he put it. He said, let's do it. Let's talk about this. I'm really interested in it. And it was a great conversation, a respectful and stimulating conversation. But when we got around to this idea, this idea of human sin and what that said about me and about him and indeed about humanity in general, something changed. I could see it in his face. He wasn't happy with that. And that kind of made a change in our relationship too. He began avoiding me after that. And I'm pretty sure the problem wasn't my bad breath. We are so committed to the idea that we are fundamentally good. My self-worth and my dignity depend on it. 
And I think that's why people care less, for example, about defending the rights of criminals, because we attach value to goodness. We have dismissed the idea that the value of every human being comes because we are made in the image of God and that that's where our dignity comes from. And because we've dismissed that, we need to find value in my goodness or in my achievements. And surely that's what God is going to value in me too, right? That I'm a pretty good person. We attach honouring God or seeking God or zeal for God to our own goodness. But God tells a different story. A story that required the death of his son to put us right with him. And we can't honour God and at the same time deny what he says about us. And again, this is why the message of Jesus is so divisive and so opposed. We may not be stoned for it, but we might be ridiculed or rejected or written off as irrelevant. Now, next week, we're going to hear that God will not allow that to stop his message from spreading. But for this week, I guess what I'm saying is that we need to be okay with the fact that this is what's going to happen. And if we're not prepared for that, we will never speak about it. We'll always water down this unpalatable part of the message. I know that's always my temptation, and perhaps it's yours too. And at the same time, coming out of this same point, I think, is the fact that it should give us humility about ourselves too. It's a tragedy when people think Christians are saying, we're awesome and you're the worst. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We are just the sick who have come to the doctor and we are calling others to come with us. And we must never forget that. And I wonder if some of the accusations of hypocrisy that are made against Christians is because we do forget that. And perhaps we do confuse our zeal for God and our honouring God with actually zeal for ourselves and honouring ourselves. And perhaps I could just finish now the way that the passage does with a better example of what actually honouring God looks like. Forgiveness. Let me read the last two verses of the chapter from verse 59. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. This is where we see the difference it makes for someone who does not confuse zeal for God with zeal for himself. Stephen had so embraced God's forgiveness towards him that he could extend that same forgiveness towards others, even those who were killing him. Let's pray that we will have that same heart. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know our tendency to be zealous for our own honour. Father, please free us from that and recognise that you are the one who deserves all honour and glory and praise. Father, help us to recognise that the problem is in us and not in you and to be willing to speak 
about Jesus who came to save sinners, sinners like me and sinners like everyone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.